You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. And this, in a sense, is the excuse episode. By what do I mean? I did promise that I would discuss the issue of hope, and I am kind of doing that. But I was going to look at a book by um, Jane Goodall. The Book of Hope. I'm just leaning behind me on my bookshelf to see it. And I did mention that I would have loved to have contrasted it with Terry Eagleton's Hope Without Optimism, but complained that I couldn't find it. Well, because we're moving house, and I'm looking at my bookshelves and, and... a small amount, and I should stress small, uh, of books that I might part with. I found it. But I've been too busy thinking about uh, our moving to get to it. This happens to coincide with something I'm rather excited about. So uh, being in Melbourne, we've been in lockdown for an awfully long time. And looking at coming out of that. And I finally get a preaching gig this Sunday at a 10am and a 5pm service. But I haven't got to starting it yet, because we're moving. So you can see where all these excuses are coming in. But so I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to toss around some ideas with you about the passage that I'm going to address and the fact that I'm moving may feature a little bit. So we talked a bit last week, uh, if you listened, about COP26 and the perceived failure it is in many ways and other ways perhaps not. I was on Hope FM just recently too, talking about the fact that there were some mixed blessings in that. Now there are, of course, I guess a flavour or or a style or direction, a form of being Christian that sees uh, climate change as a non-issue, that sees getting actively involved in those kind of justice issues as a distraction from the gospel, if not an impossibility, precisely because the whole thing's preordained by God. That is, it's a sign of the end times and therefore unavoidable and therefore it's heresy to engage in such issues because you're getting in the way in the timetable of God, which of course is a bit silly because in that view, how could you? And of course, the go-to text for this understanding, this view of the world is the book of Revelation. Now, I wrote a book a couple of years ago, All Things New, God's Plan to Renew Our World. And I wrote it in collaboration with the Justice Conference, which is an international movement, if you will, uh, of conferences that happen where Christians get together to discuss the relationship between the gospel and justice. And I was launching a book one year at the Melbourne Justice Conference called A Climate of Justice, Loving Your Neighbour in a Warming World. And the person who was was chairing uh, this book launch or who spoke at this book launch just happened to mention that 
uh, all things new was going to be the theme for the following year. And I knew I had to write a book on that because I think I'd done a reasonable job at writing a book and was, was happy with the result. That this whole idea of all things new, of, of eschatology, that is end times theology, is so often done wrongly with the kind of ideas that I talked about just before. So what I want to do is, as I say, um, bounce around some ideas and, and speak to you specifically from Revelation 21. Let me read it to you before I start throwing around some ideas. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away, uh, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Now, I wanted to keep some, some word pictures in your head. Firstly, for those living in Melbourne, imagine that you're frequenting a, a, um, an antique shop. And you find a little knick-knack, you're into railways, and you find a timetable for the Warburton line. That is the train line that runs from Lilydale Station all the way up to Warburton. It's in amongst the trees and so on, and it must be a picturesque area. I've not been out that way. And so you take this timetable, this old timetable, say from 60 years ago, and you rock up to Lilydale Station and use this timetable as a current timetable for events, namely the time of the train. Two things, of course, are wrong. Firstly, it's an old timetable. Why would you expect the trains to run to that? But secondly, and more importantly, there hasn't been a Warburton line for years. It's actually a bike trail now. The second word picture to keep in your mind is, imagine overhearing a conversation between two people you know, and they're talking about a situation that you're involved in. And as they talk about the dispute, you think about yourself as being in the right, you hear their positive affirmations of one individual in the situation, and you say, yeah, that's right, that's the way I approach things, I know I've done the right thing, so on and so forth. And they talk about the other person and in derogatory terms. So when you butt in and, and start to, to add to the conversation, it's pointed out to you that no, you're not the good guy in the story. You're the bad guy, you're the one who's done the wrong thing. You've heard the conversation and you've automatically assumed that you are in the right. I'll, I'll leave it there and we'll go back to the, the last word picture in a minute. But these are the problems with reading the book of Revelation. People have tried to identify a timeline and match current events to it. And also they've tried to match the bad guy in the book to whoever they didn't like the former Soviet Union, the Arabs, the Chinese, the United Nations. 
rather than, and as, and you can you believe it, of course, I can't remember the author of the book, um, but there was a, a human rights lawyer in Harlem, whose name I can't remember, that's terrible, I know, but anyway, and he wrote a book about Revelation, uh, a bit like the style of, of thing that Walter Wink did when he wrote about the powers. But this writer, whose name begins with W, uh, talks about America, and in particular the situation of the Vietnam War, as casting him in the empire role, the bad guy role that you find in the book of Revelation. So it's a lens that we never turn outwards, inwards. Sorry, We're always turning it outwards. The last issue, before we go on, is, is the following. Now, I'm moving, as I've already mentioned. So we started planning before we were given the formal 60 days notice. And in fact, we've signed a lease, paid a bond, and the first month's rent. There's a wonderful service that we find now where you can organize with it, it's complimentary service, the swapping of your utilities. So of, of three, I think it's three utilities, two of them will be canceled for us automatically and the three, three, all three of them will be started up at another location. I've already organized online our internet and broadband seamlessly. Now, of course, at some point we will move all our things and that will happen over a period of time. It's just around the corner, really. So I'll move a bunch of things like all my books that I can cart in the car and then a removalist will come and take all the big things like a fridge and a washing machine uh, that's a clothes washing machine and, and various bits of furniture. And of course, once everything's in the house, there will be a period of unpacking. And it's it's around the corner, so there's not a great deal of adjustment. But you see what I'm getting at. I mean, some people will say that the whole of the Christian life is about moving from one house to a completely different house. The house of earth to the house of heaven. And therefore, they don't really care. I mean, for all I know, the, the house that we're living in that's going to be sold will get knocked down, but I still have to clean it. The other issue is at what point have I moved? Or at what point am I moving? Moving, in other words, is an ongoing activity. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to keep that in mind as well, is that we talk about eschatology, the end times. And it seems to me that the, the story of the, the New Testament is what we call partially realized eschatology. What that means in is what that means is this that books like the book of Revelation are not entirely about the future, but they are a good deal about the past. In particular the book of Revelation really and this whole section of Worthy is the Lamb who was slain clearly points back to the cross. And Revelations chapter four and five really do talk about the fact that the one on the throne, the one who's seated on the throne and the Lamb are in charge of history now and not the empires of the day, our day or the first century day where it was Rome. And yet, of course, very clearly, things are not as they could be or should be. So what I'm driving at is when we think about eschatology, when we think about end times theology, we need to capture in our minds the thought that the end times have begun the end times are here, and the end times are yet to be. That is to say, there are some things that very clearly um, are in the past. So when Jesus gives the disciples 
the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who, who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's in, in Matthew. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, All power and authority uh, on heaven and earth is given to me. In fact, let me get the right words because I'll mangle it otherwise. Uh, Matthew 28. It's dead easy to find because it's the end of Matthew's Gospel. Um, uh, which comes before Mark. So I'm just fiddling here. Um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So if that's not saying that the kingdom has come now, therefore the end times have begun now. And yet when you look at some things like Romans 8, where it talks about creation groaning, longing from its uh, subjection to futility, and looking forward to the resurrection of the dead, those things are clearly in the future. So we need to hold those two things in tension. And as I, I may very well have said before, when you put that, when you understand that to be a millennialism, that is, that there's not a literal thousand years uh, as, as spoken about in, in Revelation 20, that it begins with the resurrection, that it's not something future, but it, it refers to the, the state between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. But that means that you you have hope with our optimism. That is to say, you know the story is going somewhere without always expecting things to be improving or without always expecting things to be going down the gurgler. So it's neither optimism nor pessimism, but it's a hope. And I'll come back to this when I talk about Jane's book in another program that leads us forward. And I think of Greg Boyd's book on doubt, that faith is really just that, ability or view to move forward just that next step along the road and so therefore doubt is not the opposite of faith it's apathy or indifference or disbelief that you're going to struggle as you move forward and let's face it when we look at the commitment that world leaders have made when it comes to uh, carbon emissions and the fact that we're really still on track for and I've seen figures of 2.1 to 2.7 degrees of warming the things don't look great. When we see, for example, an Australia government that's committed for coal to be part of our economy for a long time, and yet the science is telling us that we need to get to zero, and not just net zero, but actual zero, or nearest ever to net, because the sinks operate slowly. And so that does mean reforestation, and it does mean looking after peatlands and wetlands and all these sorts of things. But it's not for doing accounting tricks to saying, well, we can emit, emit as much as we like because we'll just do all that in the future. It's not the way it works physically. The more you warm the system, the more greenhouse gases you have in the atmosphere, the more you have to draw out. And the less efficient these things happen to be for drawing it out. So warmer soils will increase microbial activity, which will actually release greenhouse gases, will release carbon dioxide. So we need hope, but we need to understand from a biblical perspective uh, that we can have that hope because it's begun in the present and yet will be um, completed in the future, but that we must be incredibly careful about imposing timetables on things. And therefore, the calling for us is to work steadfastly, um, 
in this regard. And after the break, I'll talk more about that and we'll look again at the passage and how that kind of, that broad framework about Revelation works. Back soon. I've been trying to talk about a hermeneutic, a way of reading both of the book of Revelation and eschatology in general, and I guess world events too, and not to get too confused. So let's dance through quickly through the first six verses of Revelation 21 and just pick out the eyes of thing. Now, firstly, it begins, then I saw, and when you read Then I Saw as a transition, it's very much a change of scene in the book of Revelation. And we tend to want to think that that means um, a physical change in events rather than a change in scene or vision or view in the book. In particular, when it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, the idea that even if you take the view that physical incarnated state of being is important rather than the pure heavenism that's essentially a, a platonic type thought you know all those visions of disembodied sitting on the clouds they're, they're caricatures of a broader view that lots of Christians have and a hymnody, hymnody captures a lot of talking about heaven in an incoherent manner as if it's just some disembodied state. And if we had time, we could talk about, for fact, um, earlier in the book of Revelation, the vision of the martyrs under the throne is a vision about now, not some future state where heaven is the end of, you know, what was it Tom Wright says that heaven is, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world, which is, which is, you know, him being facetious, saying that in essence that, well, to use the fancy theological term, we're talking about the intermediate state. But be that as it may. So the idea that the he heavens and earth, the first heavens and earth pass away, is almost like uh, a change of scene. The scenery winds back and you see the new scene revealed. And in particular, and what's key, is this phrase that the sea was no more. When I was a young Christian, this is always bandied about as a joke against the surfers. And uh, there's actually, there was, I don't know if there still is, an organisation called Christian Surfers, who are Christians who happen to surf and embed themselves in that culture. It's kind of an incarnational mission. Always engage in something that you generally are passionate about. Uh, so that when you're, you're speaking to people about Jesus, you're not simply selling them the product of Jesus, but you're sharing something that you love and including yourself and your faith, right? But... The whole idea, of course, that the, the sea was no more goes all the way back to the ancient Near East and Genesis chapter 1. So you've got the deep over which the Spirit of God hovers over, the waters uh, in, in Genesis 1, and the Hebrew for deep, tehom, is related to time at 
the chaos monster, the personification of salt water, and in the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, she is slaughtered uh, and her body, her corpse, makes the heavens and the earth. Whereas, so it's, it's a force, it's a chaos monster. And you get that ordering in Genesis 1, that good ordering of six days of ordering of this, um, this chaos, this deep, so that um, agriculture may proceed, so that human beings and animals may have trees to eat of. And then the chaos is re-released, the fountains of the deep, I think is the expression, in the flood narrative, in the priestly flood narrative, because of the violence on the earth. So in, in this vision then is not a literalistic one. I mean, you take it literally, it's saying there's a new heavens and new earth and there's no sea. Well, don't fish count. What does surface do? I mean, it, and the oceans are the source, major source of water via evaporation, so clouds and rain and so on. So there's no water cycle, right? No, it's, it's not meant to be taken literally. It's saying that chaos is at an end. And that's captured a bit later on in, in the passage when it says, and, and this points to this being fulfilled in the future, uh, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And that surely doesn't um, describe the current situation. Of course, in the resurrection of Christ is the death of death. But it's not been fully realized. So you get the my moving illustration from the first half of the program. And that talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And there's all this stuff about brides and husbands and so on and so forth. And then you get... And I've just realized... Oh no, don't mind me. Um, that this is the passing away of the first things. It's a passing away of an order of things. A way of being. I mean, and yes, surely that's that's physical in the sense of well, if there's no death, or at least it's talking about human death, and you tie that back to the story and the the garden and the ejection, which of course is a way of talking about exile and separation from God. That these things have passed away, and the curse of death that you see described in the garden story is undone. Which should tell you a little bit of something about the fact that um, you're re-entering the presence of God and it's echoing the Garden of Eden. And, and again, don't have time to unpack this fully, but we can connect the garden strongly with the temple sanctuary. The shared imagery of trees in the lampstand. Um, the fact that the law was the source of wisdom and, and knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, which the original pair in the story grasp after. Uh, the, the imagery of the cherubim, the east and uh, the exit to the east of Eden, where the gate, uh, there was the east gate of the temple. And in Ezekiel, that's where the spirit departs. And, and it should make sense because, of course, at the center of Jerusalem is the temple and where what's a temple if not the place where God dwells in specifics or specifically. And then you read then, see, I am making all things new. 
And the idea that this is a process points to the fact that this is what's happening now in the present. Now, I don't have the book to have, well, I do, but I'm not sure where it is, so I'm not going to go find it. But there's a wonderful uh, quote in Terry Eagleton's book, Hope Without Optimism, where he understands Christian eschatology much better than most Christians. And he talks about the fact that there's this narrative of growth and of progress and so on in the modern Western world. And it's a, it's a narrative that the gospel, that the idea he talks about the kingdom of God, runs entirely contra to. Now, why, why do I say that? Well, I'll get to it in a, a second. And it's not actually in the bit that I've got here, which is kind of frustrating. Uh, but I can jump forward to it because there's a, a textual connection between chapter 21 and 22. So I'll, I'll get to that. But So the idea of making all things new, it I make this point when I talk about Colossians, when Paul writes that all things are made through and for and by Christ, and that all things will be reconciled to God through Christ, and all things, there's all things on heaven and all things on earth, and there's the discussion of powers and authorities and, and thrones and so on. So it's this idea very much that the things that are reconciled to God is everything. And so if all things are being made new, that means everything. And that includes the human institutions like the conference of the parties that comes together and is dominated by the fossil fuel industry and comes to naught when it when the rubber hits the road doesn't make the kind of decisions that it needs to these things will be made new these things will be reconciled to god of course what else will be made new is the non-human creation that we're despoiling and of course earlier in revelation um john of the apocalypse calls this out and every time i go looking for it i forget where it is and it is in chapter 18. And I'm trying to find it in front of me. There's this great curse about or curse on artisans and merchants and all those who profit from an oppressive uh, economic system. Which, remember, the Roman Empire meant enslaving most people and extraction of huge taxes and so on. And so, is it in chapter 18? And you, you believe I can find it, and this is always the way when I go looking for it. But this idea that God will, God will judge those who destroy the earth. This is what happens when you, um, oh no, it's back in chapter 11. The nations rage, but your wrath has come and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and all those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So John of the Apocalypse could recognize that uh, an oppressive system um, of empire which is later on cursed um, for the Babylon, the, the merchants, etc., could be so destructive to the earth as a whole. And, and this wasn't that separation that we tend to make nowadays between the non-human creation and the human creation. Remember, you go back to the flood and it's violence on the earth. So affecting everything. So the idea then is that I am making all things new 
is that this is a process that's begun now, but very clearly it's not been completed. Um, death will be no more. Uh, death is no more in that strong sense that Christ has conquered death, but people still die in the present. Um, mourning, uh, I guess the ultimate reason for mourning is gone, but we experience that pain of loss in the present. And so there's crying as well. The other thing that's, that's clear in this passage here is um, in verse 6, To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of water, of the water of life. And so it's, again, it harkens back to the garden narrative and the river that goes out from Eden. Now some scholars will say that it's very, it's clear enough to them that this river is meant to purely water Eden. And, and while obviously Eden is watered by this river, the watering uh, that allows um, the garden to grow, and it's the same watering that waters the earth for the creation of the man, human, uh, the Adam, out of the, the dust of the earth. And so the river goes out and splits into four headwaters and provides blessing uh, for the country around. It's an interesting piece of, of exegesis that obviously I don't buy in general terms from a textual point of view, but also you see it more generally in the understanding that God only seems to want to bless the church. We provide, we, well, we, we have four walls around the activity of God, another way in which um, Christians will deny that God works in the world to make all things new. And so this water um, in particular to the thirsty I give water as the gift from the spring of the water of life. But then when that imagery is carried on a bit later, in chapter 22, uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Uh, and then you get the fruit, of the uh, 12 kinds of fruit from the trees that are on the side of the river, and it's for the healing of the nations, not just the healing of individuals, not just the healing of Israel, but the healing of all nations, which again comes back to the fact that when God makes all things new, God makes all things new. And you can see the political commentary all the way through the book of Revelation and the whole throne room scene, for example, and the casting down of the crowns uh, speaks against the mockery of what happens in the Roman court, the portable throne of Nero and all these sorts of things. So I want to emphasize then, just as my moving house is uh, something that's begun and is in process and will be completed in a later date, so this making of all things new is the same thing. And given it's a process and given we know that God's in charge now, but there's still crying and there's still pain and mourning and loss and death, that we expect that our actions have meaning and purpose and hope, but that we can't always be optimistic neither can we always be pessimistic. So reflecting that upon COP26, I guess I would say that all things are being made new and we're called to become involved in that. Even if at times it doesn't feel like history is going in that direction. Even if it means between now and the return of Christ, and I, I sit in that camp, I'm not a, a process theologian um, per se, uh, but I expect an intervention of some description by God that regardless of the ups and downs along the way, we're part of that process of making all things new. We are, after all, um, 
the people with whom um, God is among. So verse 3, see the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. And, and while that's a future vision, it's also a vision of the church now who have the first fruits of the Spirit to tie back to Romans 8. The presence of God is meant to be among the people of God now. And while it's easy enough to point the finger at a whole bunch of things that we do wrong for this, we also need to point to that when it comes to driving the mission to make all, all things new, to be part of that. The renewal of relationships and renewal of power structures and the renewal of the non-human world. So that's all I've got. That's um, me thinking out loud about a sermon I'm going to preach, and I'll look at that and think, yeah, I've got a fair bit of tightening, but at least those ideas are there. So hopefully you, to use classic Christian jargon, you feel encouraged or blessed, or it gives you some pause for thought that, yeah, we need urgent action, but we don't abandon hope in the face of the mixed reaction that is COP26 and the daunting future that we have of a changing climate. So let's get on with it. Thank you again for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.